hello, and welcome to episode five of Across Storied Lands. I'm your host, Jordana Manchester, a Canadian-born writer, travel advisor, and anthropology enthusiast. Each week, this podcast will feature themes around travel, culture, and the human condition. But first, I want to acknowledge that I'm speaking to you from the ancestral, traditional, and unceded territory of the Squamish Nation, proud descendants of the Coast Salish Aboriginal peoples. Now that we've acknowledged the ancestors and living keepers of this great land, let's dive in. Welcome back, everyone. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time zone you happen to be tuning in from. As always, I'm so grateful and happy to have you here. And more importantly, I hope that you're all staying safe and healthy. Restrictions have started to soften here in my neck of the woods in British Columbia, Canada, as we manage to flatten our curve out here. But as a global community, we are still in the thick of this pandemic. So we have to remain vigilant, be mindful not only of our own health, but the health of others and keep supporting and connecting with our friends and our loved ones, especially if it's from afar. So, what are we talking about today? Well, today's topic is tourism. As you know, I run a travel company called Storylands Travel, and like every other agency around the world, when the pandemic hit, I took a hit. To say it's been difficult would be a bit of an understatement, but I'm kind of an optimist and a dreamer, so I've been trying to stay positive throughout this whole new reality that we're living in, I've been using this pause on travel to spend most of my time with my young son, which has been fantastic. I've also transformed this time into an opportunity to work on my business and to draw upon my expertise and create new kinds of content like this podcast. I've also used the time to seek out other travel professionals and form partnerships and collaborations and alliances in places that I never thought that I would. I've also been using the time to re-educate myself and to train and upgrade my skill set. So when those emails and trip request forms and phone calls do start rolling in, I am ready. But I do know that when we return to travel, it's not going to be business as usual for any of us on all sides of the industry. So how do you feel about what I like to call the new travel or travel in the age of the global pandemic? If it feels like everyone's talking about it, there's a reason for that. It affects a substantial percentage of the global GDP. From tour suppliers, hoteliers, airlines, cruise ship employees, tour guides, restaurant tours, travel advisors, bloggers, influencers, content creators, there are upwards of 100 million people worldwide, like myself, who are employed in the tourism sector. Which means there's an extra 7% of the world's population that is unemployed, on top of those who are already without a means to earn a living for themselves and their family. The collective return to travel is not just a financial concern for all those that I mentioned above, and it is an inconvenience for more than half a billion people that were set to travel this year who are now not able to enjoy a beloved and privileged pastime. But the return to travel is a matter of survival for communities around the world. The global collapse of tourism has inspired some difficult conversations across various subsectors of my industry, and it's raised a number of questions. What will air travel look like? Will the cruise industry survive? How are we going to tackle over tourism? What role will travel advisors play in all of this? And on a humanitarian front, how can we help these communities that rely on tourism recover? And in the process, how do we become more mindful travelers? I know, I know, this is a lot of ground to cover, and this will not be the last episode dedicated to these topics. And on that note, a bit of a public service announcement, if you are someone working within the tourism sector, 
anywhere in the world and you want to share your thoughts and insight on tourism in the coming months, I would love to have you as a guest here on Storylands. In the meantime, let's get this conversation started. What is the reality of air travel during a global pandemic? Naturally, the airline industry was the first sector of the tourism industry that drew some serious concerns about health and safety, and for good reason. According to IATA, the International Air Transport Association, close to 4 billion people traveled by air in 2018. There were 590 million domestic passenger journeys in the United States alone. China was a close second with 515 million journeys, and India was the runner-up with 116 million journeys, all within a one-year period. Air travel is big business and a permanent fixture on the global infrastructure. Now, when the airlines began drafting their new pandemic policies, there were a lot of mistakes that were made, a lot of promises that were made to make the public feel more comfortable with the idea of flying. Let's not forget the elusive promise of an empty middle seat, and that was enough to convince a few to fly the friendly skies. Now, I won't name any names because we know who they are, but thanks to the proliferation of social media, several airlines were caught violating their own rules and policies. Videos and photos of crammed flights began popping up on Facebook, Twitter, and various other places. The middle seat rule wasn't just not working. It wasn't even being implemented. Then there were the reports of landing in airports with no temperature screening, no social distancing, basically no change, other than the airports were inherently less busy. So travelers are now asking, in the four, almost five months of constant policy change, what are the airlines going to do differently and better? And what should they consider before they step foot into an airport and onto a plane? Okay, little truth talk here. Don't shoot the messenger. But without a vaccine or a uniformly implemented health and safety guideline, taking a flight is still risky business. Why? Well, let's just look at the science. According to the CDC, COVID-19 is spread mainly from person to person through respiratory droplets produced when an infected person coughs, sneezes, or talks. These droplets can land in the mouths or noses of people nearby or possibly be inhaled into the lungs. And we know that spread is more likely when people are in close contact with each other or within six feet of each other. So we've known about the the whole two-meter rule rule for a number of, of months now. It occurs in grocery stores and post office lineups and just about everywhere you go now. And we also have to wear masks. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. An airline seat in economy has an average width of about 17 to 18 inches, which means even if airlines didn't book passengers into the middle seat, there's only 17 to 18 inches between you and the passenger in the window or aisle seat. That's 54 inches way closer than you need to be to your involuntary travel buddy. Now, we also know that current cabin ventilation systems, while they are more efficient than most people think, it can still take a full four minutes for cabin air to be extracted by the air's, the cabin air's air conditioning system. King Yan Chen, expert in infectious disease transmission on aircraft and mechanical engineering professor at Purdue University, points out that passengers can still breathe in tiny floating droplets from a coughing passenger seated next to them before the air carrying those droplets can be vented out. Now, how far these droplets float before being extracted and clean is still being studied in research. In a Washington Post interview, Chen does refer to a coronavirus outbreak in 2003 that we're all unfortunately very familiar with.
On March 15, 2003, Air China Flight 112 took off from Hong Kong en route to Beijing. A feverish 72-year-old man was seated in 14E, which was in fact a middle seat. But before you leap out of your chair and argue that the middle seat should remain empty, let me finish. Out of the 120 people seated on board, 22 were diagnosed with SARS. At the same time, the World Health Organization was working on defining contact, meaning would the proximity of other passengers on board tell us how far the infection had traveled. Sadly, the elderly gentleman in 14E passed away due to atypical pneumonia, a complication of coronavirus. Passengers as far as seven rows up were also infected, as well as the two flight attendants. And five passengers on that flight later died of SARS. We do know that wearing a mask, especially an N95 mask, would have made transmission spread by air less substantial. But what about surface spread? The next issue on board is in-flight sanitation. Boeing is currently experimenting with washrooms that self-sanitize in a matter of seconds, and engineers and manufacturers at Airbus are looking at ways to recirculate air in an effort to reduce infections. At the airport, there are innovations like touchless bag drops and check-ins. You can either print your boarding pass at home or keep it on your phone, and when you do baggage drop at the airport, you simply tap your phone at the kiosk and it prints out a luggage tag, which you stick to your own bag and load it onto the conveyor belt. No human contact necessary. And of course, airports and TSA are attempting to streamline processes to maintain social distancing. And of course, masks are now playing a vital role in preventing the spread. Now, I realize this is a lot of information. Some of it may feel kind of grim, and I'm not trying to scare you or sway you either way. This is just quite simply the new reality for air travel. And until we get a better hold on this virus, this is going to be the new normal. The only way that we can really prevent transmission in the airports and on board is by requiring negative tests before travelers step foot inside of an airport. And even that has been problematic. So, do you step foot on a plane or not? Well, it's up to you, and you have to ask yourself a few very important questions. The kinds of questions I'll be covering in next week's episode. So be sure to check back. So many close calls. On February 29th of this year, I hopped a plane to Fort Lauderdale, Florida to enjoy a family cruise, a yearly tradition. On March 1st, we were making our way up the ramp of the new Staten Dam to enjoy a seven-day itinerary through the Western Caribbean with Holland America Line. Now, before I took off from Vancouver, there had already been one ship in Japan, one in Cambodia, and one off the west coast of the United States that had reported cases of COVID-19. So I'm not going to lie and say that the thought of stepping on a ship wasn't unnerving, because it was. But we didn't know the full scope of the virus, nor did we know how deadly it was or how fast it spread. Upon check-in at Port Canaveral, it felt like business as usual. The sun was shining and the port was abuzz with happy cruisers. There were no additional safety protocols in place, just the usual hand sanitizer spritz when you stepped on board, which was an old policy that was put into place after the first norovirus outbreaks. Once we hit the high seas, guests on board seemed to be completely at ease. And considering that the majority of the demographic on board Holland America Line are 50 up, a highly vulnerable demographic, their calmness and sense of tranquility definitely contributed to a sense of security for myself and my family. And there was very little talk on board about the other ships that were in quarantine at the time. Everyone was just going about their holiday, unaware that we would be some of the last cruise passengers to enjoy a normal cruise experience. Our cruise ended on March 8 without incidents, and while we usually spend an extra couple of days in Florida before we head home, this time there were time constraints, so we flew home right after our cruise. 
The very next day, I packed an overnight bag, left my son with his dad, and made my way to Vancouver for a travel advisor conference. This takes us to March 9th and March 10th. Several hundred travel advisors from across North America descended on my hometown to discuss new travel trends, to learn about new marketing strategies, how to serve our clients better, and to meet with vendors and learn about new products. We weren't gathering to talk about a pandemic, but here we were. The panel of keynote speakers had to scramble to rework their presentation content. COVID-19 had cast a dark shadow on our industry. Our master of ceremonies did a brilliant job of trying to keep things light and uplifting. There were messages of unity and community and resilience. I mean, we'd survived pandemics before. SARS, Ebola, terrorist attacks. This too shall pass, we thought. But as I sat there looking around the room at the VIPs, executives, and business development managers involved in the cruise sector, I could see it on their faces. Something scary was coming. And we had no idea what was about to happen. And no sector of the tourism industry felt the heat first and as hard as the cruise ship industry. Two days after I returned home from the conference, on March 11th, the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a global pandemic. The last ship on Earth. I don't want to walk us through an entire timeline of every ship that fell into quarantine or was denied entry to their final destinations or is still floating around today with crew on board. That's for another episode. I'm sure you watched in disbelief as I did as passengers and crew were trapped on these ships in the confines of their staterooms and crew quarters, all with the intentions of preventing the spread of COVID-19. And while many of these ships were at sea for weeks unable to find ports that would allow disembarkation, not all of the stories were so bleak. The MSC Magnifica is a Swiss-owned ship captained by Roberto Liotta, a 32-year veteran. The Magnifica started its around-the-world journey back on January 9th of this year, departing from Genoa. At the time, COVID-19 was not on anyone's radar. In February, however, the situation changed for the cruise industry. Just not for the Magnifica. The ship and her guests were cruising along fine until the Center for Disease Control issued a no-sail order on March 14th. By the time the Magnifica arrived in Sydney Harbor, they were met by protesters, the police, and the military, all demanding passengers to remain on board. So, Captain Leota announced to his guests and his crew that their world cruise was officially over and they would be making their way home. Other than stopping for supplies and a refuel and to let off a member of their crew in Colombo, Sri Lanka, the MSC Magnifica spent the rest of its days at sea until it docked in Marseille on April 20th. And surprisingly, there were very few complaints from the passengers on board. And those that did file complaints, those complaints were generally because of the behavior of other passengers. Several of the guests have since been interviewed, and most have said it was a bonding experience. They had plenty of food and drink, and the staff and the captain were exceptional. They even formed a Facebook group called The Last Ship on Earth. There was one death on board, though it wasn't related to COVID-19. Miraculously, no passengers or crew contracted the virus. The Cruising Challenge All in all, about 40 ships are said to have been affected by COVID-19. However, we still don't have precise numbers on how many contracted the virus, because after disembarkation, travelers dispersed. Some ships had passengers from 48 different nations on board. 
We have no idea how many of those individuals brought COVID home to their communities. Even the reported mortality rates on board have been somewhat fuzzy. The number of deaths is somewhere around 100. But sadly, that does not include the number of suicides of crew members on board, who've been forced to remain in quarantine, unable to get home to their families. While some cruise lines may recover, others are facing a PR nightmare. There are inaccuracies and half-truths that advisors and consumers and past travelers have had to sort through, not to mention a complete lack of transparency when it comes to releasing data. With some cruise lines suspending operations until the end of 2020, the various lines will have to use this time to rework onboard policies and rethink their sanitation processes. The cruise industry may have to work harder than any other sector to gain back consumer confidence. So what are the challenges that they face? And how can they tackle these challenges? New waves of change. As USA Today has put it so eloquently, hygiene is the new luxury. As you can imagine, cleaning a cruise ship is a challenging endeavor to say the least. There are so many places for passengers to congregate and pass through. Dining rooms, theaters, pool areas, casinos, cafes, lounges, gangways at the ports of call, hallways, stairwells, cabins, the list goes on. These floating entertainment centers provide an infinite number of services and it makes it easy for viruses and bacteria to spread and an infinite number of opportunities for passengers to spread the illness between each other. Just think about how quickly norovirus spreads and it's not nearly as contagious as COVID-19. Now that aside, a cruise ship's level of cleanliness can definitely rival that of an all-inclusive resort or an airline and some five-star hotels. If you've ever been on a cruise ship, you will immediately notice that there's an army of crew that are constantly cleaning, polishing, vacuuming, and sanitizing. But even so, cruise lines are going to have to take 10 steps further. Companies like Norwegian are implementing frequent touchless temperature checks and eliminating self-serve buffet lines. They're installing new medical grade air filters with a natural disinfectant. And they'll be staggering check-in times to eliminate crowding and reducing capacity in public areas. Other innovations that have been suggested on other cruise lines have included in-cabin antimicrobial carpets and fabrics and touch-free washrooms. Another suggestion put forth was to create a mudroom of sorts outside of each cabin where guests could leave their clothing and their shoes. And this space could double as a depository for crew to leave food and linen in case of a quarantine order. There's no one solution, and it's going to take a lot of research and time before they implement such measures, but as we know, time is of the essence. Now, economically, cruise ships are facing a very unsettling new reality, which will probably change the way business is done forever. And this is all speculative, but mega ships may become a lot less attractive to prospective cruisers. Royal Caribbean's Symphony of the Seas, including guest and crew, holds a staggering 9,000 passengers. These mega ships post a greater risk of spread than those with fewer passengers and more space on board. The CDC could very well recommend passenger restrictions on certain lines in order to comply with physical distancing which means cruise lines will have to look at new ways to generate revenue. Post-pandemic cruising could see passengers preferring to book balcony and balcony cabins and suites over inside rooms to ensure access to fresh air. In the race to design the biggest, baddest ship, this pandemic could very well put an end to such a trend, giving way for cruise lines with smaller ships and river cruise companies to outshine their mega competition. 
Over tourism. Go home, tourists. Barcelona. Tourism kills. Mallorca. We don't spend even one euro in marketing anymore. We don't want to have any more people come here. Amsterdam. My home is a playground for drunken backpackers. My culture is being diluted and disrespected. Bali. We are not a theme park. Venice. These are just some of the grievances and statements made by residents of some of the most visited destinations around the world. Striking a balance between creating a robust local economy based on tourism and meeting the needs of locals and demands of the tourists has become a battleground. Cities like Venice are feeling threatened by overtourism, and understandably so. And if you're wondering, well, what exactly is overtourism? It's quite simply too many people visiting the same place at the same time. It's overcapacity. Venice can see their local population swell by 120,000 people in a single day. And with a local population of just 55,000, that equates to an increase in population size of over 216%. And the majority of these tourists are visiting the same landmarks at the same time. St. Mark's Square, the Rialto Bridge, the Grand Canal. This bottleneck of tourists quite literally creates a footprint that damages Venice's fragile buildings, inhibits local Venetians from going about their everyday life. It puts a strain on the city's infrastructure, and let's be honest, it creates a less than desirable vacation experience. There is a price to pay on all sides when over-tourism becomes an issue. But the fault does not lie solely at the feet of travelers themselves. Local governments and tourism boards have long operated on a more is better model. And we know this model is short-sighted and has unfortunately translated into gentrification and loss of local populations, increases in poverty due to the rising costs, loss of affordable housing due to corporations, and increased pollution, just to name a few. At the end of the day, inexpensive travel products have made too much of the world too accessible, both economically and logistically. And while most of not, if not all of these places are suffering economically now because of no tourists due to COVID-19, now is a time to reframe tourism models and come up with more innovative solutions beyond just taxing tourists. There needs to be a more collaborative model between local governments and tourism boards and the people whose space is taken up when tourists come into their communities. How can we be more mindful travelers? Travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness, and many of our people need it sorely on these accounts. I'm sure you're familiar with that famous Mark Twain quote. But how true is it? What happens to those preconceived prejudices when you arrive in destination only to be met with anger, in signs telling you to go home, in shops that have two different price points, one for the locals and one for tourists, and a general feeling of being unwelcome? Tourism phobia, a term that was first used back in 2008, is a very real phenomenon for these cities and heritage sites, coastal towns and islands. I can't tell you how many times I've had clients return home to say, it was so beautiful. We had such a great time, but ugh, the locals are so rude. It stings to hear that. As an advisor, I take it personally. First, I feel responsible for my clients having the time of their lives, but I also feel responsible for sending the right kind of travelers out into the world to explore it. 
And that means travelers who have an open mind and are mindful of the impact that their presence may have on a particular community, especially one grappling with an over-influx of tourists. Travel is only prejudice to bigotry if you open your heart, learn not to take things personally, understand the local issues from a local's perspective, and practice mindfulness. Okay, so what do I mean when I suggest that we need to be more mindful when it comes to travel? According to Diane Winston, Director of Mindfulness Education at UCLA's Mindful Awareness Research Center, mindfulness is paying attention to our present moment experiences with openness, curiosity, and a willingness to be with what is. It's the capacity of our mind to not be lost in the past or the future, but to be more present, and most importantly, to be less reactive. So a mindful traveler would be someone who is naturally more respectful of the local culture, someone who is open and willing to observe the experience through a beginner's eyes, rather than someone who comes into a culture with a set of expectations, nor do they attempt to impose their own culture on local culture. Mindfulness is an excellent way to combat anxiety, something many of us experience while we're traveling, myself included. It fosters resistance to instinctiveness, which you may think is kind of counterproductive, especially when it retains to your safety while you're traveling. But I really think there's a time and a place for those instincts. Mindfulness requires you to regulate your emotions. So I'll give you an example, a personal example. If you are taking a stroll through the alleyways of the old Medina in Marrakesh, but suddenly anxiety starts to creep in and you start to worry out of nowhere that you'll never find your Riyadh, the result will be you sleeping out on the street with a small army of cats and stray dogs currently following you hot on your heels. You can recognize that's just a thought. It hasn't even happened yet. In that present moment, you're totally okay. You're having an adventure. You can listen to the sound of your own footprints echoing off the ancient lime plaster walls and return to that moment. That is mindfulness. Another way to be mindful is to slow down. When we swoop into these destinations overrun with tourists, list in hand, we hurry about ticking off all those sites and snapping the all-important photo for the gram, all the while trying to carve out those local moments. Instead, skip travel during the peak seasons. Get outside of the city centers, way outside. Pare down that list of must-see places and consider lesser-known destinations. Don't rush through your meals, savor them, and put your five senses to good use. Listen to the language and dialect differences. Observe everyday local life. Note how you feel about a place or a landscape or an exchange. And most importantly, tap into the power of scent, one of the most underrated senses. Okay. I'm going to get a little scientific here. Our brain's limbic system, which is home to the olfactory bulb, a neurostructure of the vertebrate forebrain, can identify and remember 10,000 different scents. These scents contribute to our moods, memory, behavior, and emotions. Remember that. Another one of my favorite ways to be more mindful is to bring a small journal to jot down notes. I know everyone likes to use their phone, but there's too many distractions on your phone. Writing things down keeps you in the moment. You can record observations to remember later, doodle or draw things that you see. The act of writing itself can force you to be in the moment. And that really is what mindfulness is all about. Being present, giving space to others, and not letting unhealthy thoughts control your experience. 
that's it for this week's episode of Across Storied Lands. Thank you so much as always for listening in. I know there is so much more to unpack on this topic. It's impossible to cover all in one episode and we've only just scratched the surface. I just wanted to give you some food for thought if you're thinking about booking a plane ticket or booking that cruise. Um, Just give you an idea of what the future of travel may look like for those sectors. And I wanted to start a discussion on how we have to look at tourism differently. I definitely plan on diving much deeper into issues around ethical tourism and what G-Adventure's CEO Bruce Poontip calls community tourism. I want to dedicate an entire episode to the role of travel advisors during the crisis and why I think if you haven't considered using one before, you may want to think of using one after. Um, And I want to talk about how the pandemic has impacted some of the most vulnerable communities around the world that rely on tourism and how we can positively stimulate their economies. I really hope this wasn't too doom and gloom for you. We will absolutely be jet-setting around the world again at some point, but with some major differences, and hopefully differences that will be beneficial for all the amazing places that we visit, not just for us, the traveler. I also wanted to mention that if you are interested in learning more about mindfulness or you need tips to deal with anxiety, there are some great podcasts out there that deal with this. Anxious with an Attitude is a Canadian-based podcast with two amazing hosts, Also, the Mindful Minute by Alan Klima is one of my personal favorites, and the Liberate app, which talks about issues that address racism, microaggressions, and coping with difficult people, and mindfulness. If you have any questions about this episode, or have a suggestion for future topics, or if you are a travel professional, be it an advisor, blogger, a member of a tourism board, a tour guide, or a supplier, I would love to include your thoughts on an upcoming upcoming episode, so please feel free to send me an email at jordana at storylandstravel.com. I am proud to say my podcast is now available on seven different platforms, including Anchor, Breaker, Google Podcast, Pocket Cast, Overcast, Radio Public, and Spotify. I know many of you are listening to me on Spotify, so hit that subscribe button so you're notified the moment a new episode drops. And if you've been enjoying the content here on Across Story Lands, please leave a review or share with a friend. Thank you so much again from the bottom of my heart, and remember, in a world where you can be anything, be kind.